Welcome to another episode of the Secular Buddhism Podcast. This is episode number 61. I am your host, Noah Rochetta, and today I'm sharing the audio of an interview I did this morning with Yael Shai. Yael offers expert guidance on beginning a meditation practice and explores how to bring that practice to relationships, social media, social justice, and the ups and downs of everyday life. This interview was recorded live, and it was streamed live through to the Facebook channel and to the YouTube channel for the Secular Buddhism Podcast. And I wanted to extract the audio and upload it to make it this new podcast episode. While I was checking this, I noticed the looks like the last two or three episodes have been interviews. And I wanted to remind you that this isn't the format that's taking over as the main format for the podcast. It just so happens that I've had three interviews and in between those three interviews, I have not had a chance to record a podcast episode under the original format, which is just me preparing a topic. But I do plan to continue doing that. Recently, I've been hunkered down. I'm working on a new book called Essential Buddhism for Beginners. And this is a project that I was commissioned to write from a publisher. And it's been really exciting because I, I think this book is formatted in question and answer format. It's formatted in a way that I think it will be a very valuable tool or a resource for people who are interested in learning about Buddhism, but also for anybody who's already practicing to kind of have a almost like a glossary to be able to go look up different terms based on questions. What does this mean? What does that mean? So it's a project I'm really excited about, but the deadline for it is January 8th. So I've been hunkered down working on that and limiting the time that I'm spending recording new podcast episodes. But after January, I plan to jump back into this full force with the three new formats for the podcast. So the the original format is what I've been doing all along, where I prepare a topic and I present it. The second format is the interview, and I've had a lot of people reaching out to me, um, good authors and, and, and really good people to interview, so I'm excited for some of the interviews I have lined up. So that's the second format, the longer, roughly one hour long interviews like this episode. And then there's a third format I'm going to introduce. Every week I have a, an online group that meets, like an online sangha, and I prepare, um, I guess what you would call a dharma talk or a message for the end of the meeting. It's usually 10 to 15 minutes long, but I'm recording those and I'm going to start uploading those so I'll have more content to share more frequently. A lot of people have mentioned how you enjoy listening to this podcast and sometimes getting it once a week or as I often do once every couple of weeks um, isn't enough and I've been asked if, if you know if I have more content to throw it on there so I'm going to start uploading the third format which is those kind of shorter snippets these are going to be smaller segments that um, just have more filler content so um, be looking forward to more podcast episodes uh, coming soon. 
Um, you also may have noticed a new music introduction in this podcast episode. Um, several weeks ago, I was uh, contacted by Yoseba, uh, uh, who is a film composer. And Yoseba was uh, very kind to offer mixing uh, an audio track for me to use in the podcast that would go more with the mood and the style of the podcast, which is meant to be uh, relaxing. So that, that's where the music comes from. I'll be using that as the new introduction and exit for the uh, podcast interviews or podcast episodes. So if you enjoy that, you can always check out Yoseba's work um, at the website uh, J-O-S-E-B-A-B-R-I-T-E-L-O-L-A, YosebaBritelola.com. That's with a J. Um, so check out Yoseba's work. And thank you very much, Yoseba. I hope you enjoyed listening to your uh, your audio on this podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to use that from, from now on. So without further ado, I give you the audio of the interview with Yael Shai. Welcome, Yael. Thank you for being on the show. So happy to be here. Thank you so much. I'm a big fan of the, the show and the podcast whole thing. Well, thank you. Um, okay, so I'm excited to talk about a, a, a couple of topics specifically. I think the, the two I'm most excited about are um, the expertise that Yael brings to the topic of mindfulness and relationships, because we are all in relationships, right? This not just romantic relationships, which I think is, is key here, but any relationship, relationships with siblings, with parents, um, with children. And then uh, the other overall topic is social activism. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that, uh, specifically how do we how do we change the world without burning out? Um, so let's start with the first one, mindfulness and relationships. Um, tell me a little, well, uh, before we jump into that, uh, tell us a little bit, Yael, about how you got into uh, mindfulness, meditation, Buddhism. Like, well, tell us a little bit about your journey. Sure. So I started um, meditating when I was a college junior. And really, I came to it from a lot of suffering, a lot of stress, and not just kind of the stress that people often talk about with college students, like so much homework, you know, fights with the parents, deep existential th stress about what is the point of being alive, what is my role in this world, um, you know, how, how am I supposed to survive when all of these uh, range of feelings just rushing through me and a lot of anxiety and fear just constantly. So I was having panic attacks regularly and my, the circumstances of my life were kind of falling apart around me and my parents were getting divorced. I had ended a relationship. I felt very lonely and alone. I just uh, was struggling hard. And so then I um, was having a really hard time. I sought out a bunch of different kinds of advice. What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to get better? And I found a, my, my mother actually passed along to me a flyer about a meditation retreat, a seven day silent meditation retreat. I had no concept of what that was. I had never meditated before. <laughs> 
Yeah, it was crazy because I was imagining like a nice spa vacation with maybe like hot tubs or massages. And I get to the retreat center and it was really just seven days of from morning till night meditation without much of a break at all. And we weren't allowed to talk to anyone. We weren't even supposed to be making eye contact. It was extremely intense. I had multiple panic attacks within a couple of days. You know, I was having I was having fantasies about hot wiring cars and getting getting out of that place. And then about midway through on the retreat, I um, I finally got to talk to a teacher about all the stress I was experiencing, and he said to me, and I said I'm just so full of fear all the time, and he said to me, you know, fear doesn't like the light. If you shine a light on it then sometimes you can help to understand and, and fear will eventually disperse. And so that began that process of trying to look at what was underneath all that anxiety, what was the root of so much of that panic and stress. And that really just started the journey for the rest of my life in this world, in this meditation world, um, because it, it almost immediately cracked through so much of that pain and anxiety that I was experiencing on a daily basis. Of course, it didn't solve it right away, but over the years, uh, it just, it almost transformed like the chemical makeup of my body so that I really haven't had a panic attack, you know, I don't know, like 10 years almost. And so, um, so that's sort of how I came to this practice. Wow. Yeah, it seems uh, intense suffering is a common path for people to find their way to to this path, right? I, uh, I know that's certainly the case for me. Uh, it's the case for a lot of people I've encountered. Um, and it seems like these meditation retreats almost all consistently somewhere, somewhere around that halfway mark is when people realize, okay, I can do this. And then it becomes a really neat experience after that. Yeah. I Why do you think that is? Is, is? is it because we're just not used to doing anything remotely close to sitting in silence for that long? Yes. I think we're not used to it on multiple levels. We're not used to it on the um, just uh, like our everyday consciousness level, but our bodies are not used to it. So in the beginning, everything is screaming either in pain or I've, I know many people who just slept through their first three days because you know, it's not what it, well, the body has no idea what it's doing. You sit it down and you say like, don't move. And so it thinks it's bedtime. And so there's all kinds of things that come up. The Buddha called these things hindrances that come up when we sit down for meditation. And, um, and it's especially for beginners who do what I, I mean, I did a crazy thing. I, most people have had some experience, exposure to meditation before you do that. But, um, but retreats are just incredible incubators of ourselves. And most of us do not fit with ourselves and our minds for that intensity for that amount of time. Yeah. You know, when I think of, of meditation in general as the, as the art of becoming comfortable with discomfort, I think retreats like what you're describing, that's boot camp, right? <laughs> that's the, uh, is boot camp. yeah, you're going to sit there and it's going to hurt until suddenly uh, at some point you become comfortable with that discomfort. And I imagine that's why it's so transformative too. That's right. 
Yes, that's right. And it's just that the, if anybody's thinking about doing one, if you haven't done one yet, um, the, the real key is just to, to have as much as you can to muster the faith that you will, something will happen. That's what we promise whenever I lead a retreat, that something will happen. You don't know exactly what it will be, but um, but just to hang in there through those that tortures, for some people, beginning time, maybe not for everyone, but certainly for me as early days. Yeah. <laughs> well, cool. Thanks for sharing that. Um, so let's jump into the topic of mindfulness and relationships. Uh, this, so you have a chapter in your book. I'm trying to remember exactly what it's called. I think it's mind. Is it mindfulness and relationships? Mm -hmm. Oh, mindful relationships. That's yeah, that's exactly what it's called. Yes. <laughs> I don't so in the chapter, <laughs> in in the chapter of mindful relationships, um, you kind of bring together the, you merge the concepts of where how does mindfulness benefit a relationship. So let's talk about that a little bit. Um, kind of summarize the the marriage of these two things. Sure. So like you said, everybody's in versions of relationships. Um, and I think what we all crave out of relationships is to be fully seen um, or heard, seen and heard, to be, um, to be felt and seen for who we really are and to be heard, our voices heard, our needs heard even if the other person can't always meet the needs or can't um, fulfill our dreams, our fantasies, our, to, to really be seen is so healing and what so many of us are seeking. So in order to then be able to really see another person and to see them in their totality, then I think the practice of meditation and mindfulness kind of enables us to see ourselves, to open up our own hearts to ourselves, to see all the ugly and the difficult parts, to see the parts that um, we believe are beautiful and strong, and to have space for all of those different elements. And so the more we do that, the more we cultivate like a loving, appreciative, accepting relationships to ourselves, the more we have space to let in the totality of another person and to really see them rather than what often happens, which is we use the frame of another person to kind of um, try and discover whether or not we are lovable and the person feels used and feels unseen and we feel frustrated because we're not getting the right answers, we're not kind of getting to the right thing and everybody suffers. So the best um, metaphor I've heard about this is from a, a Zen teacher named Thich Nhat Hanh, who I'm sure many of your uh, listeners know. And he talks about how if you put a, a handful of salt in a glass of water and you try and drink it, you, you can't drink it, it's disgusting. But if you put a, a much even more than a handful of salt in a very large clear lake, you can still drink it and it, it there's enough space for it to dissolve and the lake water can still taste delicious. And the uh, metaphor being that when we have a lot of room and space for the difficult things that arise and for all the different parts of ourselves, then we have that room and space for other people. Hmm. Yeah, I like that, uh, the analogy of the salt. You know, I think about from the psychological standpoint, we have the negativity bias, 
right? Where uh, I, I forget what the ratio is, but for every X amount of good things, or yeah, like for every one bad thing, it takes X amount of good things to offset that. Right. Um, do you remember, do you know the, that ratio is? Is it four, ten, something like that? Exact one. I know exactly. It's, it's, it's higher. It's like this. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and I think in relationships that becomes really evident, right? Mm -hmm. You know, your uh, especially romantic relationships, your spouse can do uh, ten nice things, but then they they do that one thing, and boom, that's where our focus goes. And I I I, I imagine this concept of the salt. Uh, kind of being like that it's like well if you if you're just focusing on this it's really salty but you you increase your awareness and you it's not that the circumstances changed but the perspective changed right. that's something i like that you highlighted in your book um bringing it back inward right because what we're trying to do through mindfulness practice in general is that same thing in relationship to reality there's reality and then there's me and i feel separate from it and everything i'm looking for is out there but then mindfulness kind of tweaks this and, and you, you turn that shift, you start to look inward and realize, oh, it's, it's here, it's me. And I think it, that's hard to do in a relationship because we're so programmed to think everything I'm looking for in the success of this relationship is contingent on that other person. It's yeah. outward, right? Yes. So um, when, when you notice, like when, when we start to apply these principles uh, mindfulness principles into something like a relationship. Um, you brought up this concept of the mirror, that relationships are like a mirror. And I really like that. So uh, tell me a little bit about, like, how does that really work in, in a practical sense? I'm in a relationship uh, um, with my wife, for example, and, and there's this mirror. What, what are some of the common things that we see, that we hope to see, um, if we don't realize it's a mirror, but when we realize it's a mirror, what, what do we start to see? What changes? It's a great, great question. So I'll use myself as an example because that's the easiest for me to use. Um, so I, um, I was single for a very long time, much longer than I wanted to be. And I think I was, I put a lot of hope and pressure on if I met someone then um, and they saw me as like the one, the most beautiful, the, the best person in their life, then I would finally in the inside really feel that way about myself, that I was worthy, that I was lovable. And, and so, and I was, it meant so much to me that many, you know, potential suitors came along and and I, if, if I sensed even a little bit that any of them couldn't do that for me, couldn't kind of present me with that picture of like, you are everything. And then either it was my fear or, or something else just kind of kept getting in the way. And I kept thinking like, that person's not for me. That person's not for me. When I finally met my husband and we were, you know, getting serious, then all nearly all of our fights in those early years were uh, from my the ones that I started <laughs> were um, were sparked by this feeling of jealousy, like that, that some he that he secretly wanted to be with someone else, that he like really liked someone else better, that he thought someone else was more attractive, and it would the feeling in me would be just so much 
shame and fear and anxiety and pain because I was still looking outward to get that inner feeling of like, I'm lovable, I'm worthy. And even though he was giving me a lot of love and was giving me a lot of support, it, as long as it's outward, it will never be enough. That's what I, I, I realized. We all want outward love and attention, and that's fine. But when, you, when it's to answer that core question about ourselves, then we are not, um, we're never going to be happy. It's never going to be satisfying. And that's where a lot of my um, mindfulness practice had to come in. I had to say in those most difficult moments, you know what? Um, this relationship is now, it is just about me looking in the mirror of myself and my own worth and whether or not I believe to myself that it's about my own worth. It'd be, it'd be different if he was giving me a lot of evidence, you know, that he really wasn't that into me, but that wasn't happening. And so that's where the kind of mirror comes in. Once you see, you know what, this is happening over and over again. This is triggering something over and over again. And it's, and once you see it, then you have to go back in. And I, every time I was about to kind of start a fight along these lines, and this has been until recent years, really, that I had to take a break. I had to take some space and I needed to bring a lot of love and compassion to my own painful experience of what that felt like to just to not really fully get um have that strong sense of i'm lovable i'm fine i'm beautiful i'm okay and took a lot to do that and then part of it is to grieve almost that the partner is not going to be able to do that for you they can give you a lot of wonderful things but they can't answer that essential question mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I love that. Uh, something I want to clarify. Do you hear that echo? Or is that just me? Um, maybe a slight one, but nothing that's distracting to me. Okay. <laughs> okay, oh, that went away now. Okay, so uh, with this concept of um, you know, find, looking inward and finding the contentment and the love there first, um, I want to clarify to, the, to anyone listening what we're not saying. We're not saying that as long as I love myself, I can stay in this unhealthy relationship, you know, with this person who's abusive or something like that. That's not at all um, what this is insinuating. I think what, what I'm hearing, and I want to be clear about it, is what Yael is saying is um, the complete, that sense of completeness that comes in a relationship only comes when it's complete here you know, on, on your side, um, when you are okay with you, then you can be okay with, that's when the relationship can be completely whole. Um, and, and I want to correlate, correlate this to this, uh, societal view of, you know, my other half, right. And, and the idea is that I'm half and someone else is going to complete me, but without that other half, you're not whole. And this is saying, no, that's nonsense. This is saying you Mindfulness helps you realize you are it, right? You are essentially it. And, and when you are whole, you take a whole and another, whatever the other is, that other may be half or it may be, uh, it, it doesn't matter. Wherever that other thing is, you work well with that other part because you are whole, right? Does that sound more along the lines of what you are insinuating? Yeah, 
Yes. The only thing I want to also clarify in there. So absolutely. Yes. This is not about like a settling, you know, like if you can't find someone that you're matching with and you should just like settle for them because it's really all about you. Don't believe in that. Not a good idea. <laughs> or, um, or accepting people's people being unkind or, or are not good to you. Absolutely not. And that's just really um, a lot of it's just more suffering, you know? So it's, so yes, um, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying with a person you really love, and once you've had the chance to really see that person, then we come to that question of in each of these difficult interactions, where are you and who is them? And where, where is this um, appropriate boundary? So my stepfather, who is a very wise man, always says this line, love is boundaries. And we, we don't think of it that way. We often, especially in the buddhist world of we are all one and we are interconnected, which is very true. But I think when it comes to relationships, um, the seeing and understanding the boundary of where someone else begins and you end is even in a relative sense, is really, really important to all kinds of relationships, romantic and otherwise. Um, but before I forget, the one thing I just wanted to adjust is that this is not a static process. So it's not like, okay, I am at one with all of myself. I am fully enlightened and then love myself. And now I'm ready to be in a relationship. It's a constant process of back and forth and figuring out what's yours and what's the other person's and just trying to be awake to the whole thing. Even if you're still stuck in the really hard place and you, you don't love yourself or you have a lot of self-loathing, just trying to be aware of it goes a long way. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. You know, for, from the Buddhist perspective, we we talked about and acknowledged that uh, life is or, or things are impermanent, right? In other words, everything's changing, constant change. And in a relationship, I mean, this this is a, extremely evident, right? Because then there's the me that was me when I got married, for example, and that's not the me that I am today. Uh, same with you know, with my partner, with my wife. She's not the person I married, and I hear this from people all the time. Uh, concepts like, oh, that's not who I married, you know? And it's like, well, of course, that's absolutely not who you married, and you're not who they married. <laughs> um, so this this idea of looking in the mirror relative to time is you're always looking in the mirror because you're not the you you were five minutes ago, much less the you that you were, you know, when you got married or when you started the relationship. So, yeah, uh, emphasizing that this process is dynamic, it's if you ever think we got it, we figured it out, we're there, that's when you should probably worry because um, <laughs> you don't get there. The point is you're always getting there. And I think I like thinking about that in terms of relationships, especially romantic ones with my wife. I, I'm thinking we'll never get there. That's the point. We're always building and working on the dynamic of our relationship. Who is the me that is in love today? Who is the person that I'm loving today? Because that's not the same person from yesterday. And, and that, uh, the ability to keep it fluid like that, I think is, is uh, in our case, has been really helpful. Um, it, it was in a period of, of my of time in my life when I felt like things were stagnant. Uh, I'm the me that I've always been. You know, th That's when there was conflict where I was thinking, uh-oh, is this not my soulmate? 
you know, is this, did I pick the wrong half? Is there another half that would have been more suitable? And, you know, because I was thinking in terms of, uh, of that sense of permanence in the relationship, but when I, when I learned to look in the mirror, that was a drastic change. And when I understood the, uh, the, uh, um, the aspect of uh, impermanence in the relationship, that changed the dynamic. <laughs> yes, so well said. And it's just this process of continually waking up and being like, who's in front of me? Who is this person? This, And when you're together a long time, I, I think my understanding, I haven't been together yet with my husband for longer than I think we're in, going into four years, but but I think it's it's even more important to just really see the person instead of being like that kind of hazy, yeah, I know who you are. And certainly if you have kids, um, if you have any any of these relationships in our lives, I think to really keep committing yourself over and over, like the same way we come back in meditation practice over and over again, what's happening now? What's real now? What's the story in my mind? We come back to this person. Who is this person now? How are we interacting now? How, how Who am I now in this thing? And um, it's, a, it's a beautiful practice. It's a, a really intense but beautiful practice. Yeah, and um, I think it requires a lot of vulnerability too, yeah. right? Because to, to show up and just be seen, like, well, this is me. Uh, it seems like in relationships, especially romantic ones, we're always adding layers. I'm, you know, I did this for a long time in my marriage. I'm trying to be who I think she thinks I should be, yeah. right? And so I'm, I'm measuring myself, who I am versus who I think, and, and it's, the layers are insane here because it's who I think you think I think you should, you know, <laughs> it gets really crazy. And you're doing the same thing back. You're comparing your partner. It's like, are you allowing them to be who they are or who you think they should be or who they think you think they should be? Yeah. Like it, it gets extremely complicated with the layers and masks that we put on. And I think this, uh, the mindfulness approach is just saying, like you, like you just said, you show up and you just ask, well, who am I? And who is this? And what is now? What is happening now? Yes. Why are we saying this? Why am I feeling this? And that I think is a, a really powerful uh, exercise. Yes. And the times when I felt kind of like that upswell of love for my partner is oftentimes those times when I'm like, oh, look at this person that's sitting on the couch with me that I'm like, did you pick up the milk yesterday? Like I usually kind of, you know, not ignoring, not taking for granted, but just like they're a piece of the furniture. But when I look and I'm like, wow, this is kind of a miracle. We're trying this thing together. We're doing this thing together. And that's where these like swellings of love come from. Cause I think it's impossible to feel that all the time, but um, yeah. moments are, are really special. Yeah. Um, okay, well, that, that's been great. I want to take this concept and expand it a little to other forms of relationships. Uh, something that you mentioned in the book that stood out to me uh, was your understanding of uh, the relationship of love in terms of, of your son. How old, is, how old is your son? He's 13 months, and I have another Aww. on the way, actually. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Um, so you mentioned something that really resonated with me because I... I have three kids, ages eight, five, and two. Um, but you mentioned like this realization that with your son, you would give your life up for him in a heartbeat, no questions asked. So this, it, it's like, there's this idea of conditional love, 
that I think we kind of get stuck in. Like, uh, I love you because you love me. And, but if you didn't love me, then I probably wouldn't love you back. Right. But then suddenly kids come along and you discover this new level of it where it's, it's truly unconditional. I'm not, I don't need anything out of it. Like the joy of it is that I get to love you. And, and that's what I was gathering as I was reading that part in your book where you're talking about your son. So let's talk about that a little bit. How, um, you know, it, it reminded me of like meta practice, right? Where you're trying to have that sense of, of unconditional love for someone. You start with someone where that's natural. Uh, when I do this exercise, I start with my, with my kids and then expand it from there. How can I love my wife in that same unconditional way? I love my kids, uh, parents, siblings, and you move out from there. Let's talk about that a little bit. Have you um, had any experience with that? Yeah, so I wrote in the book and I still feel this way, like that is the edge. It's very interesting. So um, that write, writing about that was in reference to uh, the Heart Sutra, which talks about, um, talks about just like a mother at the risk of her own life uh, protects and cradles her only child you know, th thus we have a boundless love for the entire world. So in this Heart Sutra, the comparison is like a mother with your only child, you have the same boundless love for the whole world. And when I first times I read that, it was before I had kids, I was like, oh, lovely. That sounds wonderful, I have that. And now when we come back down to the kind of brass tacks of it, definitely not, I definitely, feel a different way about my family than I do about the world. Even if I may not wish anyone harm in the world, that kind of just entire, like a love that goes that deeply that I feel so deeply connected is not present in the same way. But I've had little moments, like just actually um, maybe a, a year ago on a retreat, we had, um, like a, a light, uh, we broke a, a um, like an, uh, one of those light bulbs. And I wasn't sure if the light bulb was fluorescent or not. And you know how when you break a fluorescent light, not fluorescent, but one of those kind of like eco-friendly light bulbs, then- Oh yeah, the ones that just explode when they break. So annoying, yes. <laughs> then mercury, and you're supposed to like abandon the area and, um, and like air it out and all this kind of stuff. And I was pregnant at the time. And I remember when the light bulb broke, it was on the far end of the room, it was a large room. And so we were about to do, um, so we were about to do a meditation and they were cleaning up the light bulb and we were, we still at that moment didn't know if it was that kind with the mercury. And I said like, you know what, I'm pregnant. So I'm gonna take my cushion and sit on the other end of the room and, uh, and then I'll feel better. And as I did that, and as I started seeing all of the um, retreatants come into the room and some sitting right next to the broken, <laughs> where that broken light bulb was, I just started to have this horrible feeling like, what is the difference between this life that I'm trying to protect inside of me and this beautiful life that's over there sitting potentially near this source of poison? And I just, all of a sudden I got up and I was like, you know, wait, we have to actually figure this out. Like, I can't just protect myself. This is ridiculous. And I think it's because I was sort of in that heightened heart space of a retreat where I could actually um, tap into that there is literally no difference there. Like a life is a life and everybody deserves that kind of love and care. So 
you know, little pockets. It turned out it was not that kind of a light bulb. It was all fine. <laughs> just, um, you know, it's just little edges of where the heart can be really expanded to include more and more people. And I love the way you connect it to meta practice because that's that's where we're like going to the gym and weightlifting to to expand our hearts that wide. Yeah, I think uh, similar to what you're describing for me, it's been in those moments of practicing that that I get those glimpses, you know, either seeing somebody connecting for a moment maybe it's just mentally doing uh, meta practice but it's like for a minute i can grasp the concept of truly loving everyone the same way i love my my own children and it feels incredible now uh and then you get back into the day-to-day -day routine right the habitual reactivity of of, of life and it's it, it's not as easy um but I, I love that you just compared it to the gym because it's the same way with, with the gym right it's like well, what makes it work is that you go all the time and it's consistent and, and you and you do a routine. That's when after X amount of months or something, that's when you notice uh, you're a lot stronger now. And I think this is this is similar. It's practice, practice, practice. And then one day you realize, wow, I, it's, it, it comes naturally to feel the compassion and, and the uh, unconditional love much easier than I, I did before. Yes, yeah. I had one... Um a teacher say that it's sort of like the heart is one muscle. So, you're, you know, it's, it's either open or closed. It's not like a, a dimmer switch that you can kind of keep in one area. And so as you work that muscle, it's going to keep opening and opening and more, more and more people can fit. But when we're like tightened around just a little, little nuclear family, it's, um, it's, it's, it's actually not, it's, a, it's it's not as liberating. Like you said, it doesn't feel good. It actually doesn't feel very good. It feels um, tight and constricted. Yeah. Okay, well, well great. Um, if, if we were to, if you were to offer um, just one snippet of advice to someone listening who's saying, I want to have a, a more mindful uh, relationship with whoever they're thinking of, whatever, um, what, what tips would you give? Are there specific meditation techniques or just advice to someone who wants to introduce mindfulness uh, into their relationships? Mm. Yeah, um, I have a, a meditation, a mindful love meditation in the back of my book. And on that one, it's about kind of realizing, coming home to and realizing how much you have been loved over the course of your life and how much you have loved. Because I think where a lot of us run into trouble and run into difficulty with relationships is this feeling of like we're coming in and we're beggars and we're, we're empty and the other person must fill us or must meet our needs because we don't have anything here. And so this practice focuses on from the beginning, even if people hurt you when you were a child, even if things were not wonderful, which is the case for a lot of us, somewhere along the line to have you survive until this day, some, you know, many people did acts of love to keep you alive. And then you, with maybe without even knowing it, have had enough in you to do acts of love for other people. So starting to tap into that fullness within oneself in meditation 
I think is really helpful for relationships. That's sort of number one. And then I think number two, it's really helpful to, um, to do that practice that we were talking about, really trying to see who is this other person and who am I? And really going back and forth on those pieces. And then there are, then there's like the kind of communication piece that um, when you're, when you're really communicating something with someone, when you're in a fight, know when you need to take time away. My, one of my favorite lines on this is strike when the iron is cool, never hot, get really cool if you possibly can before you engage with somebody that's triggering you. Um, and then when, when you are engaged as much as you can through communication, see if you can fully let the other person feel heard and seen before you then say, can I now share my piece of this? And that might be just repeating to them back exactly word for word what they say until they feel like you've, you've got the whole story right, you've got their entire side of the story right, and then say, okay, now can I explain to you mine? Would you mind repeating it back to me? And so there's um, that's like a, a tip from the nonviolent communication folks who have an entire curriculum around that. But I think it's also deeply a mindfulness practice of being willing and able to um, be with oneself, to be with the boundary, and then to be with the other person. Great. Okay, thank you for sharing that. Um, one more aspect of it that I just thought of. You know, we talk about the mirror and, and starting the process with uh, learning to love yourself. You specifically mentioned in your book, you had this moment where you, you're looking at yourself in the mirror and you said, are you going to love yourself or not? Yeah. Um, how do we start that process of introspection in, in a relationship? I want to improve my relationship. How do I start with me? Mm -hmm. Is there a, a, a first step or something like that? Yeah, it's accepting, it's trying, it's looking and accepting what is already there. And it's, um, it's not going to happen overnight. We all carry a lot of judgment and pain, but it's almost like we have to marry our, ourselves and be like, I'm committed to this with you. And that was my moment when I asked myself, listen, are you in or are you out? Like, it, it, we have a life together, me and myself. And if I'm really committed to opening my heart to myself, loving myself over time, then I need to really accept what is there and to um, form a friendly relationship, even to the parts of myself I thought were so horrible and so ugly and that I never wanted anybody else to see. Just continually coming back to that and holding it with love and realizing that you know, it was it was probably parts of myself that developed when I was very young in response to situations that were out of my control. And so for me, all of meditation, all of this process of even just coming back to our breath and coming back to our feelings, coming back to the things that arises is a practice of learning to love oneself. And uh, it's not a fast process, but if you're committed, if you've like put that ring on, then that's where um, that's where the work happens, and that's where you will slowly and slowly just start to um, to love this being that you are. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and again, just going to the gym analogy, right? We wouldn't think if I go to the gym today for ten hours, then I'll finally be strong. Mm 
Right. It's like that. It doesn't work that way. In fact, that's going to be really right. bad for you, probably. Right. Tear all your muscles. Um, so right. yes, consistency and time, and and that's how it works. Very much the same way as uh, going to the gym would. And the only other thing I would add, which I think I, I didn't before, is that part of the meditation process is hearing our inner critics. And so, because otherwise they're just running our life. Like, you're stupid. If you, ugh, why are you such an idiot? Oh, why do you do things this way? You're such a failure. Like these things that we just say to ourselves constantly without the second guessing it. And so I think another piece of the meditation practice where we start to hear this voice and then don't hate, don't believe it, you know, slowly start to interrogate that voice and not kick it out, but just not believe that it's true. Yeah, I love that. Uh, because I do think early on, or uh, we focus a lot of energy on trying to silence the voice yes. or thinking that this won't be okay until that voice is gone. I need to get rid of it. And then you're just up for disappointment because the surprise is, hey, the voice doesn't go away. But it's the moment, like you just said, when you realize, I don't have to believe my own thoughts. Yes. Oh, well, now they can just be there. They can say whatever. And you're like, oh, there's that thought again. Yeah. But um, it doesn't have power over you anymore. Right. And if anything, yep. you just have a lot of room for all of these voices that, again, like were probably created when you were very young and they are still young. They, they're not so wise. And so, yeah. so they're not like these big evil demons that they are, you know, that they feel like so much of the time. Sure. Okay. Uh, let's, let's shift topics and talk a little bit about um, social activism now. Um, one of the common things I hear, and I'm sure you encounter this too, a misconception it seems about mindfulness or living mindfully is if you're mindful, you're just kind of content with what is, and there are bad things happening in my community or in the world. And I'm like, well, you know, whatever, let things be. And, and I think that's a fundamental misconception. Um, so I want to address that a little bit, um, how, there's social act activism, right? Any, any form of social justice or work that we do in that arena. How does mindfulness come and fit in? How does it improve uh, social activism? Yes, so this goes right back to that analogy I was saying um, in that meditation room that day where I thought to myself, okay, I'll protect my baby that's you know in the womb, I'll protect myself and other people can, do, can work it out for themselves. And the more that we really tap in, the more we open our hearts, but also just experientially understand that our that we are deeply interconnected, and that we are we sink or we swim species as a world together. Um, that that kind of like. I'm, I'm here, I'm in this just for myself and maybe like a couple other people and everybody else can, you know, fend for themselves, that starts to break down, that starts to actually start to see, not because it's like the right thing to do, but because actually that leads to more suffering for myself and for others. It leads to more feeling of like a wall of a division, which then makes me feel imprisoned behind this wall, this imaginary wall, I am separate from everyone else. And so the more that we practice and the more we really truly see how our fates are completely tied in together, then the more that we can't sit by when other people are deeply suffering. And we've 
always unfortunately lived in a world where there are people suffering and we i mean hopefully not you know hopefully this will not be the case sometime in the world but i i assume for my lifetime there will always be people suffering um but it's no longer an option to just be like oh well i'll, I'll just meditate so that i can feel calm on my day-to-day -day walk to work because that's not it's you're not gonna feel calm you're not it's not going to um ease some of that inside suffering that you have while other people are still um are still in pain and so that's yeah. the connection in my mind um i really like what you shared in your book a quote um this is i think from the aboriginal um the quote says, if, if you have come here to help your time, but if you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let's work together. Right. Um, because that's introducing the, the idea of interdependence again, right? That we're all, we're all connected. Um, and and I, I think of that, not just in the context of going and doing, you know, building schools somewhere in the world, like something big, I'm thinking, Wow, this is extremely relevant in my relationships just here with a friend who it's like, hey, I want to help you. But how different that perception is if it feels like I'm helping you because I know what's good for you and I know how you need to be versus we're tangled up in this together. Uh, let's work together, right. <laughs> you know. Right. The helping mentality is like uh, um, asymmetrical power structure and people adults mm -hmm. don't really like to be helped on a large scale but everybody yeah. needs you know real solidarity and people working um in alignment with them yeah isn't that fascinating because as uh we're hardwired as social creatures to want to fit in almost everything we do re revolves around the making sure i fit in and that i'm not excluded yes. and yet I think we have such a hard time feeling like receiving help. So it's like, I want to be part of a team, but I don't want you to do anything for me. So, but if we're doing it together as a team, that's great. That's what I actually want. Yeah. So it seems like that's a, another way to kind of shift that mindset. It's like, we're, I'm on your team. We're, we're working together here. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's, it, you know, to some degree, it's actually legitimate to not want to like, be helped by someone who has no idea what your circumstances are who who you know when it's a patronizing relationship it can often feel like the person is trying to just do help you for themselves and the same way like if i want to help someone else it's sometimes just so that i feel better but then it's all about me it's not really about them so yeah. it's a realignment of that yeah and I think sometimes in my past experience, um, I think sometimes that's aggravated by certain beliefs, right? If I want to save you, it's like, oh, you're not, I'm not saved the way that I am. No, I'm going to save you. And, uh, and, and I, I try to make sure that doesn't, I think it's easy to have that extend in, in even Buddhist practice where it's like, uh, you need more mindfulness like me. Look how mindful I am, you know? And it just doesn't work to have that mindset. That's, it's, it's so far off the mark. <laughs> that same way of kind of trying to manipulate others. It's just using these different tools, but it people sure. feel manipulated because there is that kind of manipulation happening, even if you think you have the best intentions. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, something I wanted to highlight with uh, social activism and, and kind of going back to that misconception of uh, that Buddhism isn't really engaged socially. Um, uh, I, I think of someone like Martin Luther King as a good example of this, where, uh, I mean, just imagine for a moment how ineffective all of his work would have been if he was hyper-reactive and, and highly emotional in his, in his uh, approach, you know, very reactive and it would be completely ineffective. I think what made him such an effective power for uh, enacting change was he he was very calm and level-headed, and he had wise things to say, and he could present um, he could present things in a way that made people think, "Oh yeah, why are we doing this? Why are we not doing that?" Um, and I think that to me is the key of the the connection between mindfulness and sh and so sh uh, social activism is what we're trying to accomplish through mindfulness is essentially skillful means, right? So if I'm going to be engaged in a social cause, I want to be as effective as possible. So mindfulness can help me to be more skillful in my engagement with whatever cause I'm in. And when I see it that way, then I realize, oh, well, mindfulness is a really powerful tool to increase the effectiveness of whatever social engagement I'm involved with. Absolutely, without a doubt. Um, and at the same time, I want to be careful also because it doesn't mean that you don't, I imagine, and I think from what I've read of his writings, I mean, um, Martin Luther King was feeling, felt things, felt. Oh, absolutely. Felt, you know, um, frustration and suffering and um, and, and had those kind of strong responses. So that's, I know that that's not what you're saying, that we, that we don't feel um, even like furious or angry or deeply wounded or afraid, but that, um, but that, that like, you're, like you so beautifully said, that we develop the, the right strategies and skillful means to address it. Um, and then the only other thing I would add to that is that, you could say that about anything like this, you, that mindfulness could bring you skillful means to um, do a bank takeover or something like that, or to pay <laughs> a country or, you know, which is true. I think they're it, the Italian job, right? <laughs> exactly. Like it's just, um, it is actually like to give you those tools of calming and focusing and being, um, uh, uh, responsive and not reactive, it does give you those tools. So it, it, in that case, it's correct. But then if you couple that with also uh, the interconnection that we're talking about and that mm -hmm. um, the kind of commitment to relieving suffering, then it becomes that you not only have the skillful means, but you also cannot do things that harm people. Um, mm -hmm. And you can't even have... And I write about this in my book, this line that I love, which is like, how you do anything is how you do everything. So there, I think we who are, who do engage in social justice, oftentimes find ourselves sometimes in situations where the language is vitriolic against the other side, or it's dehumanizing of the other side in a way that... Um, I think does not do us any favors. I think it just perpetuates this, again, that sense of a division of the, those people are bad and we're good and we just have to win and then we'll be okay. 
And that's the real hard work that when you're fighting for justice that nobody can be left out of. It doesn't mean that, you know, you don't hold people accountable or that you don't restrain them when they're doing harm or anything like that, but that it's all done with the spirit of we are connected. Then then it's an entirely different kind of um, a spirit. Yeah. Yeah. And I would, I mean, for me, um, I think that's what makes it so powerful is knowing that the, the sense of wanting to do something arises naturally out of, uh, out of understanding, understanding that we're interdependent, um, rather than this is what you should do. Why? Because it's what you should do, right? It's not compelled. It's not a commandment. It's not, I'm supposed to love everyone. So here I go. Right. You know, it arises very naturally out of understanding and that understanding arises through you know sitting and meditating or, or practicing mindfulness then it's like oh why why are we doing this why aren't we doing that why you know and and all of it is natural and i think that's a, a an important part to highlight because when it arises naturally i think we can be more skillful and more determined with the cause because we're doing this because this is what feels natural. It's not, I'm doing this just because. Right. Absolutely. And and there's a Zen proverb that says in Zen, we do two things. We sit and we sweep the garden. It doesn't matter how big the garden is. And that's the proverb. And that's, (laughs) that's the sort of spirit when you feel, when you feel just so overwhelmed by the state of the world, then I think when you're like, well, time to pick up my broom and sweep my little tiny corner of the garden. And I'm just going to do that mm-hmm. until I die. Like it doesn't matter if the garden is as big as the whole world. That's my job. Yeah. And that's what gives you the sustainability to do that long-term. Yeah. And to do what I can, where I can, and when I can, which is now right. and, and not have that feeling, feeling overwhelmed. Um, like, well, if I can't, you know, I do this with work when I have a, 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 enough projects on my table or on my plate, I can feel overwhelmed and think, well, I'm never going to get any of it done. So I guess I'll just sit here and not do any of it. <laughs> uh, and I think that can translate to social activism where it's like, this is so overwhelming. I just won't do anything. Yeah. Uh, and I think mindfulness helps us to take that step back and say, but you can do something. I can do this, you know, this little thing that I'm doing here. And that's, and, and, and that's where I start. Right. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And not only can you, but, um, but it's, it, it's for, it's for the sake of all of us. It's for the sake of yourself and for all of us. Um, one of my teachers, Rabbi Alan Liu once said, you, um, you know, walking around the world with, we have sometimes like this psychic squint. We're trying to screen out all the unpleasant, all the suffering, all the, the things that people are going through. To, and we're just trying to like be happy just by ourselves and that psychic squint gives us headaches like it gives us entire life headaches <laughs> and so to to really commit ourselves even to our little corners of the garden means to really open our eyes and to say like I'm not gonna um, wall myself away from this anymore and it's tremendously freeing to do that um, it, to me it, it feels like uh, okay, I I accept there is suffering and I'm going to do what I can and I'm not going to hide myself away anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I like that analogy of, of the squinting. Yeah. And what's the irony of, of a strategy like that 
is that the thing that you're doing is the thing that's causing it to be worse, right? It's like, I'm doing this because I want to be shielded, but that's also what's preventing me from taking in all the things that, uh, that are great. Exactly, exactly. You screen out, you screen out the suffering, you screen out the joy. That those, yeah. they're, they're all part of the same thing. Yeah. Okay. Well, for anyone who's watching live who, who has questions, now would be a great time if you want to, uh, if you're on the Crowdcast uh, uh, website, you can post your question or put it in the chat. I'm just going to check really quick on the uh, Facebook one and see what's going on there real quick. I would hate to find out later there was some really good question and we just didn't see it. I'm assuming that even it all worked and it's broadcasting the way it's supposed to. <laughs> yeah, it's live. Okay. Uh, so I see uh, I, I see comments, um, but I don't see any questions on there. And I don't see any questions on here either. Uh, and we are approaching the, the one hour mark, so I don't, I don't want to keep keep you too long and, and, and take your precious time, um, but let's uh, let's just shift quickly to um, the idea of insecurity, intense emotions, and insecurity in general. I think this ties into what we've talked about. There's insecurity in relationships. There's insecurity in the things that we do. Is what I'm doing helping? Am I just wasting my time? Um, what should I be doing in life? Like, there's a lot of insecurity in life, and, and across all the age groups, I think it's especially evident in those younger ages where, you know, you're trying to decide, hey, this is where I pick the, you know, the path that goes this way or this way. Uh oh, what if I get the wrong one? Yeah. But then it's evident later in life too, because you go down the path and you're like, is this the path I should have gone down? Um, you know, most most adults think have thoughts like, is this the person I should have married? Is this the career I should have gone into? Like, what would it be like if I was over there, right? So this insecurity that we seem to live with uh, at any given moment, um, we talked earlier about how mindfulness as a skill set, as a tool, is trying to help us to get more comfortable with the discomfort. Yes. And the fact is, life is uncomfortable. And thoughts like that are natural. So again, rather than thinking, uh-oh, I need to never think those thoughts, it's just saying, huh, what, where did that thought come from? Exploring it. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about that just for a second. How do we become more comfortable with the discomfort, with the, the insecurity? Mm, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy you framed it that way because I think that's exactly what, what it is. It's not finding a solid ground that you can stand on necessarily. It's learning how to surf on waves that sometimes will take us under and sometimes will just be enough that we can kind of move our bodies and be flexible <laughs> and surf gently on those waves and then when we're completely knocked over we try and get back up on that surfboard again and it is um i truly believe that the buddha's message that um certainly like my experience has been that there the world is constantly, constantly, constantly changing. We are constantly, constantly changing. And that any solidity will um, is just from releasing into the waves. It's from releasing into a world that we can't control. 
and stopping fighting it. And it's over and over again, this knowledge, this understanding that when we try, we can change as much as we can change, obviously, and we do as much as we can do. And we try and get ourselves closer to feeling whole and feeling happy. But then when the world knocks us out again, you know, trying to just say, okay, I'm knocked out or I'm on very unsteady ground and this is what's true and, and really sinking into that. So that's, that's the challenge. Yeah. I love the analogy with surfing because you can't catch the wave if you're not going with the flow. Right. And, um, anything static in surfing is that spells disaster it doesn't work you can't stay in one spot yeah. if the wave is too big oh i better go under it if the wave is just right i'm gonna ride it um you know there's a lot of dynamic stuff happening there but definitely nothing static yes um and then when we're like inside and things are really bad the, the the thing that makes it absolutely worse is fighting it you know fighting that riptide so you have to just swim into the current that's what they always teach you and uh -huh. and that's that's the journey of our life is to figure out it's like the serenity prayer to change the things you can change and to really accept and grieve or um and, uh, to mourn and to be with the things you can't change and that and the wisdom to know the difference yeah i love that well great um this has been a really fun topic and uh i really appreciate you taking the time to uh, join me for this call um, for those of you who are listening or watching later um uh, yael's book is called what now meditation for your 20s and beyond um and uh, i read this and uh, I was telling Yael earlier that one of the things that was really evident to me is this stuff is for anyone, right? It's written from the perspective of a lot of the experiences at a, during those 20s and 30s, but it, all of the concepts in here, every single one of them uh, are applicable at any stage in life. Um, so if you're interested in, in learning more uh, about um, Yael's approach with uh, with her book, What Now? Pick this up. I assume it's available in all of the major uh, places where you can buy books. And I will put the um, the link on the Secular Buddhism website when I post this interview. I'll have the video, the audio for the podcast, and I'll have links to Yale's website to, and to uh, her book, at least on Amazon. Um, Leia says, great surfing analogy. I hadn't realized you can choose to go under the wave as a positive option. Yeah, that's, that's cool. Yeah. Um, great. Do you have any uh, final closing thoughts you want to share with us, Yael? Well, I just want to thank you so much. It was such a fun conversation and I had a, a really nice time exploring these things with you. And I just want to let everybody know that um, in addition to my website, which you'll post, yaelshy.com, you can also find me on all the social medias at uh, yaelshy number one. Awesome. Well, thank you, Yael. I'm going to end the live portion of this. Thank you to everyone who listened and participated live. This will be uh, posted on the podcast, uh, hopefully later today. Thank you, guys. Thank you.